So now it's time for our kids to come forward if you would like to do for our kids' corner this morning. Hey, what, why don't you take this side and I can stretch out here a little bit on my side. How's that? <laughs> so I have a couple of hard questions here that I'm wondering if you ever even thought about. Okay, what do you think? What controls the decisions that you make in life? I mean, do you just decide based on what feels right at the time? Or that seems like it might be a bit risky, doesn't it? I mean, if you just do what feels good right now, uh, how do you know you're doing the right thing if that's the way you base it, right? You know, or how about this? Um, do you do what you need to do if you just do what feels like fun to do at the time? You know, like sometimes there's that homework assignment or something like that and you wish you could just sort of forget about that one, right? But... You know, so maybe feelings aren't a very good guide for decision-making. You know, another area that us older people tend to get trapped in more is maybe money or something like that. I mean, money is pretty important, right? But it's not a very good decision-maker. I mean, how many decisions, though, do people make based on what something costs or what gain they think they could get from it, right? Um, but again, that's not much better than doing what you think feels good. Here's the big problem. Um, if I make decisions based on money, uh, you know, what if I overlook the things that I really want to do in life because I want to make more money or save money or something like that? Doesn't sound like a very good way to go either, does it? So uh, when I was young, when I was your age, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. But imagine if I based it all on, I mean, gosh, if I became a doctor or something like that, I could get paid better. But if I did that, then I'd have missed my calling here to be a minister, right? And I think that the worst imaginable thing to me, I think, isn't, the lack of money, but it would be getting out of bed every day for years to go do a job that's just not a good fit, right? Anyway, I know these are really big and tough concepts, and I want to talk to the adults about this today because, you see, the Bible calls the thing that controls the decisions you make a God, not God with a big G like God up in heaven. But what the Bible is talking about is making gods out of other things like fun or money or things like that. And of course, you can imagine the Bible has a lot to say about that and not much of that is good, right? So, all right, why don't we go back to our seats here and I'll chat with the adults here and see if we can sort out little G God and big G God and
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord. So over the course of the next several weeks, I want to go down a challenging road with some of my messages here. Um, I want to do this because I believe a time is coming when we as Christians will need to be more, perhaps more firmly rooted in our faith than maybe what we're accustomed to. Um, to that end, I want to chat about placing the one true God in control of our lives. So from our reading today in Isaiah 44, um, Isaiah lays out an interesting test. Actually, God is speaking, and he says, if you want to know whether or not you're following the true God, see if your God can do this. He says, I'm the first and I'm the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since ancient days. And let him foretell what will come. Now, on the surface of this, it perhaps doesn't seem like much of a challenge. You know, if you're good at history, you can sort of itemize a list of the past. And maybe you can take a lucky guess at what's going to happen in the future. It almost seems like that. But I want to check this out in a different way. In the 1840s, when statistical science began, that's actually math, by the way, um, mathematicians drew up the probability that any one man could fulfill the 20-some prophecies in the book of Isaiah fulfilled by Jesus Christ in all of history. And they concluded that the probability was roughly something like one out of 10 to the 17th power. That's like one chance in 10 quintillion. And it's a staggeringly slim margin. So they concluded that the biblical prophecy was likely actually written after the events that it foretold had already occurred. And they threw down that challenge. And about a hundred years passed and the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 1940s and among them a copy of the book of Isaiah, the Isaiah Scroll, which predates Christ by more than 200 years, proving that the prophecy actually was prophecy. It was foretelling the future. But I want you to appreciate God's challenge here kind of in a new way. It's vastly more unimaginable than one might conclude at first glance, that is, the foretelling of such specific events in the future. God has literally thrown down the most difficult challenge imaginable, and yet he himself pulled it off. And this is the God who says, pick me, trust me, I've got you, be mine. So just how staggering is this? It goes something like this. Imagine that you could pick the Powerball numbers correctly. That's pretty amazing, right? But not just once or twice or even 10 times, every time for 20 years. That's the odds that equal the odds that God has thrown down. Something along that line. 
So I think it's worth noting also from Isaiah 54, I'm sorry, 44, that there's a lot of ripe fruit to pick here. And I'm going to try and unpack some of that because we almost see a sarcastic side of God here um, in the story of the fool. I mean, how foolish is this to drag a tree out of the forest and cut it in half and use half of it to stay warm and cook your food and then to whittle an idol out of the other half and bow down to it and say, save me, you are my God. Now, certainly that doesn't seem like a modern problem. Um, I would have thought and guessed that I had idolatry completely beaten. But I want to show you it's not just so easy. Now, I've titled my message this morning, Becoming a Child of God, and in hindsight, it might have been better to call it How to Avoid Not Becoming a Child of God, or How to Get Rid of False Gods That Hold Sway Over Us in Our Lives. Uh, well, we'll see, but basically, God is making the point that every person places something in control. What controls your decisions and the way that you make them? Whatever it is, it would be your God, your idol. Now, admittedly, as I just said, I had assumed I had totally beaten this one because I don't carve wooden figurines out, right? But when we set up these false parameters that guide our decision-making, these are our modern-day idols. They are the false gods of our age. Uh, and Isaiah 44, and in several other places, God speaks out against these false gods. So I thought it might be a good place to start. How to tell if something is a false god. So I began by laying out God's own challenge, but there are other ways as well. So make sure that you don't elevate these things. Um, in 1 Samuel 15.23, uh, God says that falling under the spell of such gods is witchcraft. Well, that's an interesting word. So I want to define what the Bible is talking about when it says witchcraft. You see, it's a very real thing. It's not just Halloween and scary-looking people flying around on broomsticks. Witchcraft is the use of fear to control or override people's decision-making. It's, I know your secret. And if you don't decide my way, everyone else will know it too. That's holding somebody by witchcraft. Um, but now, how do our gods do that? Well, I can tell you, kind of like this. If you don't make the right decision here, you're going to fail. If you don't make this decision, what happens if you don't have the money to feed your family or pay your rent or mortgage? So does fear hold us in our place when we make important decisions? Because if we're allowing it to do that, we're allowing the spell of witchcraft to work on us. Does money work on you? You better keep working or else. Better not retire yet. You don't want to be poor in retirement. How many decisions in your life are premised on the notion Bad things will happen if I don't 
and you can fill in the blank because money isn't the only one in, in all likelihood. But fear is a sign that you may be dealing with a false god. Interestingly, on New Year's Day, I want to point something out. Throughout the course of the Bible, God commands his people, do not be afraid, 365 separate times. I think it's interesting. I think it's one time for each day of every year. Don't be afraid. Secondly, when it comes to false gods, we end up serving them. They don't serve us. God, on the other hand, is gracious. He's a giver of life. He's a giver of perfect gifts. He sets us free. You see, the Bible describes whatever we place in the role of God as becoming subservient to it. Actually, the Bible's word is bondservant. The modern translation of that word is basically slave. In other words, we become slaves to the things that we make gods in our lives. When a false god is in control, you become a slave to it. And Christ himself actually uses this language when he encourages us to become his bondservant, become a bondservant to Christ. He promises his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The false god never tells you, fear not. It only offers you elusive comfort or the promise that things might go better. It's certainly not the certainty of Christ, and it never truly delivers on its promise anyway. Using money again as an example, when do you know that you have enough? When does money say, enough already, you've got it now, you don't need to worry any longer? I mean, it certainly hasn't done that in my life. So, um, false gods demand more and more from you and the end give you nothing of eternal value. Thirdly, false gods know nothing. They're as dumb as a rock or in Isaiah's illustration, as dumb as a dead piece of wood. If you're going to elevate something to control of your life, shouldn't it have the power to tell you the end from the beginning really? Does money really have that power? Is, is the God of money so certain as to your future? And if he is, why doesn't he tell us positive things ever? But think about it though. You could substitute almost anything else in that place. Popularity, your rights, power, freedom, sex, eternal health. All of these things are commonly elevated to controlling our decisions. But, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with a lot of these things in and of themselves or in the right circumstance. Money is a blessing, to, according to the same Bible, that says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Nothing is wrong with taking reasonable care of your health. And certainly the Bible talks quite a bit about freedom, the freedom we experience in Christ. Actually, we want to make sure we've got the right God, though, the one that really sets us free. But contrary to our usual thoughts about freedom, it's not the lack of rules and laws. In fact, greater freedom 
requires greater responsibility. That is, more rules and more laws to stop us from hurting one another. I mean, so imagine this. We have the right, the freedom to drive a car in our country, but it would be require far less law and regulation just to outlaw the automobile. Nobody gets to drive. That's a very simple rule. But if we're going to have the car, then we need speed limits and inspections and all kinds of other things to keep us safe from ourselves and other people on the road. Right? You know. Um, fourth, false gods do not save you. They will not save you. As promising as money and some of these other things seem, uh, you know, you can't take it with you, as the saying goes. You know, and there's, of course, the story about the friends gathered around the casket during the funeral, and, you know, one friend lays a $20 bill in the casket and, you know, bless you on your journey, and the next one, not to be outdone, lays a 50 in there. And then the third one, seeing what his other two friends did, whips out his checkbook and writes out a check for $1,000 and lays that in there. You know, now, yeah, that's a funny story. But in reality, we know it's not going with us, is it? And, you know, it, it doesn't, not only doesn't save us, but it's promising us false happiness at that. I can remember, and I'm sure many of you can too, in your younger years, and that first car that you buy or whatever it is, right? And you're so excited, and this is, this is going to be a cool automobile. I'm going to find the right girlfriend with this car, you know, right? And all of those things. And then the payment book shows up in the mail, <laughs> you know? And then it's not so exciting anymore. And you start to think that, gosh, five years of paying this is a long time. I could have done a lot of other things with that money. So, um, but the true God... By, by contrast, delivers on his promises. Lastly, false gods are a lie. Can you see the lie in the example that Isaiah gives? The man that carves, that whittles the idol is so deluded, he can't step back from it and see that, well, this is a lie. I'm holding a lie in my hand and I'm, I'm counting on this to save me. Is there any chance that the wooden God is going to somehow pull through for him? No, of course not. And yet, here we are. I know that I've fallen under the spell of these things myself. And perhaps as a New Year's resolution, we ought to take a closer look. Are there things that we have put into those positions to help us decide that are really just a lie that promise something that they're not going to deliver, or worse, they're a lie that ultimately leads to our own destruction. Sin in all its forms promises pleasure. It seems like fun, until one day it isn't. False gods never deliver. They lead to a life of pursuing the unobtainable, and like running on a hamster wheel, almost. We keep chasing it, but we never get it. 
And in the long run, they always fail. Now, a few weeks back, I gave a message called Refiner's Fire. And in that message was a concept. And in English, it seems to say that we're all born children of God. But then when we read a little further uh, in, first, in the John verse that we read today, we read that to all those who believed in his name, Jesus gave the power to become children of God. Now, this is not a contradiction, but we're limited here by our English language. Because in English, we really only have one word for child or children. But Greek is not so limited. Um, and actually, if you know a little Spanish, Spanish uh, brings in some of the Greek language here. You see, what the Bible really says is that we're born technon of God, children of God. A technon is just a child by mere fact of birth. So, you know, if you've ever had a newborn or had friends that did, and you go to the nursery at the hospital and you look in the window and there are a dozen little babies back there, and all of them kind of look alike. You can't really tell which one is whose, right? I mean, you know, they're technon. They're children by mere fact of birth, and you can't distinguish them apart you know, unless somebody says, oh, yeah, no, that's my son or daughter back there. By contrast, believing in Christ, believing in God, following his commands develop, develops us into huios, children of God. Huios is actually where Spanish gets the word hijos or sons, you know. Now, Sons, in this case, as a plural, is also children. In other words, if I have a son and daughter in Spanish, I would say I have hijos, sons and daughters, right? So it's not, I'm not trying to sound kind of male-oriented here with this word. The same is true in Greek. But what is a huios? It is a son that everybody recognizes as a son because he appears like his father. He looks like his dad or a daughter that looks like her mother, her mannerisms and behavior and the things she does, you know, call back to, to their parent. So anyway, we as Christians are called to take on the character of Christ and by contrast, check out the character of those other gods. The person who values money above all what does his life look like? The person that values their rights or freedoms or power above all. But we are called to be identifiable huios of the one true God. And it seems to me this would include character traits such as graciousness, forgiveness, humility, service to others, self-sacrifice, even loving the unlovable and doing things that are, seem impossible. So let's make this year a year where we truly reflect Christ. And especially if we aren't already. In closing, I, I just want to look at Solomon's writing in Ecclesiastes 2.25. Solomon writes that without God, nothing can satisfy man because only God gives true purpose to life.